Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we are going to talk about DuckTales, a side-scrolling platformer released in 1989, developed by Capcom using a license from Disney for the Nintendo Entertainment System. In just a couple minutes, we're going to talk about that, but first, as is customary, we have a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 11. I am pumped to talk about DuckTales today, and I've been pumped to talk about this podcast the whole time we've been doing it, and into the future as well. And I really do want to build a community around this podcast, just around classic retro gaming in general. I just love talking about games. I love learning about them and researching them and playing them. It is just an awesome experience, and I would love to hear from you as well. If you want to reach out and either provide feedback or suggestions or just talk about games in general, there are a couple of ways you can reach me. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. I am legitimately interested in hearing what you all think, so feel free to drop me a line however you'd like. For anybody who may be new, welcome. I do want to just take a couple minutes and go over the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, each of our episodes follows a very similar style, a very similar structure. For every game that we talk about, we start by talking about the game's history and its historical context. How was it made? Why was it made? Where does it sit within the overall history of the gaming industry? After talking history, we will go into a sort of pseudo-review kind of section. I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numeric value or a particular score, but we do talk about the typical kinds of things you would read about in a review. Things like graphics, the sound and music, so how does that game actually sound, the narrative or story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and then the overall feel of playing the game in 2022. And we do all that so that we can eventually reach a verdict as to how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign the game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list, games that are true classics, we consider them entries into the pantheon of classic gaming. If a game is part of the pantheon of classic gaming, it is that darn good. You should play it. It feels just as good to play today as it did in the past. These are certifiable classics. Just below the Pantheon of Classic Gaming, we have our Golden Oldies. These are games that don't quite reach Pantheon level, but they are still really good experiences, and I still highly recommend that you guys try them out, especially if you have nostalgia for the game itself or you enjoy the genre. Absolutely go for it. They are great experiences, and they just feel really good to play. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we have our Mediocre Mentions. These are the games that I can't really recommend. They probably aged poorly or a little bit more poorly than some of the other titles, or they may have not been all that great to begin with, but these are games that I cannot recommend. You may get some enjoyment there. Some of them kind of wander into so bad it's good kind of territory, but for the most part, these are the games that are just kind of bleh, so I can't really recommend you go to play them. And then beyond the mediocre mentions are our footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot in good conscience recommend you to play any of these games. These are games that have either aged incredibly poorly or they were just not that great to begin with. I don't recommend you play them. I can't control you. Go ahead and play it if you want to, but these are not ones that I would spend my time on playing again. 
With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day, that being DuckTales. Tales is a side-scrolling platform game released on the Nintendo Entertainment System back in 1989, developed by Capcom using a license from Disney. DuckTales is pretty much one of those classic platform games that, if you were a kid at the time, you probably played it. But before we talk about DuckTales, we need to talk about licensed properties in gaming in general. Because licensing around in gaming and stuff like that, well, there is a there's definitely a history there. Um, licensing. So just to talk about the concept of licensing, what does it mean to be a licensed property? Basically what that means is that you have, you may have a, a intellectual property. So let's use an example like Disney. Disney owns a ton of characters. Disney owns a ton of intellectual property around those characters. They may be reached out to from another company that wants to license those characters for use in a game, or Disney itself might want to license those characters out for use in a game with another company. And basically what that means is that they allow that company the ability to utilize that intellectual property in their game. They grant them the use to that intellectual property through the licensing agreement, and then that other company can create the game that uses that those characters or those environments or whatever the case might be story, whatever it could be any number of things. So that's the way licensing generally works. And the way it generally performs from a video game perspective is, is not good. It licensing in video games has a long and storied history and the general quality. Most of the time, this is not a all the time kind of thing, but most of the time, the general quality is pretty darn poor. Most, most of the time, it is a cash grab kind of thing. And most of the time, the companies that own the actual intellectual property, they seem to not really care about how that licensed property is used. They kind of just look at it as, well, we're going to make some money off of it. And a lot of times you see this with movies and movies that are turned into games. And this was especially egregious in the 1980s, where pretty much any movie, any movie that had any semblance of potential action or anything that could be turned into any sort of interactive kind of experience, you probably could find a licensed version of it on the NES or the Atari. It was just one of those things where licensed properties were pervasive. That continued into the 90s. It's a little bit less uh, prevalent now. There's definitely some out there and you definitely still see licensed properties pop up, but it seems, at least to me, to be a little bit less prevalent than what it was back in the 80s. And I do have a couple of examples of really poor licensing that has occurred over time. And some of these may be familiar to you guys, so you let me know. One of the earliest examples of a game that licensed characters or licensed the story from the movie was the infamous E.T. for the Atari 2600. This is one that I'm going to venture a guess and say many of you probably know about this one already. E.T. was released in 1982 and was really designed to meet or they wanted to meet the Christmas holiday season. And what that basically caused to happen was the developer assigned to the game had only five weeks to create E.T. for the Atari. And even though games were simpler 
back then. Even though games were not nearly as complex as what they are today, and you didn't need to have teams of hundreds of people working on them, five weeks to develop a game is not all that much time. Five weeks to turn one of the biggest movie blockbusters into a worthwhile gaming experience is definitely not that much time. And as you can imagine, that game did not do well. It was absolutely an outstanding effort by the developer to try to get something out there. But once E.T. was released, it was not met with any degree of acclaim. And it was actually so bad that it spawned the urban legend of hundreds of thousands of unsold copies of the game being buried in a landfill in New Mexico. That turned out to not totally be true. E.T. was part of that landfill. It only made up a portion of the games buried in that landfill. But Atari did, in fact, bury unsold games in a landfill in New Mexico. And that was really driven by the fact that the video game market crashed in 1983. The home console video game crash of 1983 was significant. And one of the big reasons for that was E.T. And I say that because there were such high expectations and high projections for sales for the game, and it did not perform at all near those expectations. And as a result, the video game market, and there were other things, of course, as well. It wasn't just E.T. that caused the entire crash of the video game console market in 1983, but it was definitely a major contributor of that crash, which is kind of crazy that that one title could be a major contributor to that overall crash, along with other things as well. Now, this was one of, if not the first, movie-based licensed game, and it kind of set the standard for how to license and market games moving forward, which is a bit unfortunate because E.T. not only would be mostly responsible for that video game market crash, but also is probably responsible for why licensed titles in general are oftentimes so, so bad. I bet you we could probably spend an entire podcast episode just talking about E.T. and its effect on gaming and kind of the history behind it. But the fact is, would we really want to? I don't know. I don't think I do. Well, we'll see. Maybe in the future. Now, I also recognize, by the way, that the Atari 2600 was not the most powerful console, and recreating a movie-like experience on that console would have been tough. But still, there were actually examples of games on the Atari 2600 that did okay from a license perspective, or at least created some worthwhile experiences. E.T., from my standpoint, not one of them. Moving on, I want to talk about one other licensed property, and that was Rambo for the original Nintendo Entertainment System, which was released in 1987. That game was loosely based on Rambo First Blood Part 2, the movie. Uh, and I will say, for the most part, the game kept to the story of the movie. Though there was one particular part that I uh, didn't fully recognize, and maybe you guys can help me, because maybe I forgot these scenes in the movie. So you help, help me with this one. The first scene, there was one where you're walking through a cave and you have to fight flying skull bat creatures. I don't remember Rambo fighting them in Vietnam, but I could have missed it. Uh, I also might have missed the scene at the very end of the film where Rambo throws a kanji symbol at Murdoch and turns him into a frog. It's been a few years since I watched the last Rambo movie, so it's very possible that my memory is a little bit foggy, but I don't remember those scenes from the movie. Maybe, maybe that's just me. Now, obviously, I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here because those scenes were definitely not in any Rambo movie, but it does go to show you how licensed properties can sometimes take some liberties with their source material. And I think the reason for that is you can't always create a 
fully interactive game with the limited experience that you get from a film. So a film like Rambo, which is all about fighting and, and war and things like that, you can't just have Rambo shoot a bunch of people because that's kind of boring. You have to try to spice it up a little bit. And I think that's what the developers tried to do. In the process, they either intentionally or unintentionally created some very comical kinds of situations that really didn't make sense within the world of Rambo. But I understand what they were trying to do and what developers in general try to do when they license these properties. And they're not given a whole heck of a lot to work with. They just have to try to make it work. So I get it. And not every licensed property was banned. Some companies actually maintained a pretty high level of quality for the most part and were very protective of their brands. There is also a little bit of a distinction between licensing a specific movie or television show versus licensing a brand or character. And the examples we've talked about so far, that was all about licensing actual movies. You can also license a character, and then that gives you a little bit more freedom to do stuff with that character that doesn't have to fit into a prescribed storyline, so to speak. But one of the companies that really sought to maintain a high degree of quality and control over their licenses was Disney. And that's probably not a surprise, given just the way Disney operates today. But even back in the 80s, Disney was no stranger to licensing agreements, and they were fairly protective of their brand. And specifically, with video game makers, they had uh, worked through various licensing agreements over the years with a number of different video game development companies. The earliest example that I was able to find was the game Mickey Mouse, which was released on the Nintendo Game & Watch back in 1981. For anybody who may be unaware, the Nintendo Game & Watch was a series of handheld consoles that basically, uh, maybe console is too strong a word, a series of handheld games that would effectively just play a single game, or maybe a couple games if they had some, some things built in there. But the Game & Watch, actually just within the last few years, was had a, a little bit of a resurgence with the release of the Super Mario Brothers Game & Watch and then the Legend of Zelda Game & Watch, which certainly was more advanced than the real Game & Watch that was back in the early 80s. But it really did expose a bunch of the newer generation to what the Game & Watch was, or at least the general form factor and kind of what it was to the gaming industry. Game & Watch back then, though, was a much more primitive kind of device. It was basically a very, probably, I guess, one-bit kind of screen. There were no colors or anything like that. It was truly just a very simple LCD kind of display that would have games on it. And Disney licensed Mickey Mouse to Nintendo to create a Mickey Mouse Game & Watch game. And over the years, Disney would enter into licensing agreements with a number of different companies across the video game and computer game landscape. Uh, we talked about Nintendo, Atari. They would license some of their characters to Atari. Sierra Online. Um, and Sierra, for anybody who, who may not know, that's one of my favorite uh, computer game publishers of all time. I love Sierra games. I love Sierra Adventure games. Uh, the Disney property that was licensed to them actually involved Al Lowe, who was the creator of Leisure Suit Larry. He was responsible for designing Donald Duck's Playground, which is a children's game. And, and that's a little bit interesting to me that Al Lowe, who, if you ever look at him on Twitter, by the way, um, does not have the most family-friendly jokes out there. And he also was responsible for Leisure Suit Larry. But early on, he was designing Donald Duck's Playground. It was very interesting that he actually got his start designing uh, children-friendly kids' games for Disney. 
um, as a result of his employment through Sierra Online, and also Roberta Williams, who was one of the founders of Sierra and the legendary creator of the King's Quest series, she was responsible for designing Mickey's Space Adventure for Sierra, once again through a Disney license. Uh, Disney also had licensing deals with Sega, Hudson Soft, and a bunch of others. Now, the Hudson Soft licensing deal is one that I want to dive a little bit deeper into. Hudson Soft was a very prolific developer across a number of platforms back in the 80s. Their relationship with Nintendo began back in 1984 when they started releasing titles for the Family Computer or Famicom system in Japan, the Famicom being the Japanese version of what would be the Nintendo Entertainment System in North America and other regions. And that relationship with Hudson Soft and Nintendo was pretty successful. There were a bunch of popular titles that were released at the time. Some of the more popular ones included games called Load Runner, Bomberman, which spawned an entire series of games. And the game that I personally most remember early Hudson Soft for was Hudson's Adventure Island, which is an incredibly difficult platform game. But I also, for whatever reason, I love it. I highly recommend playing that game if you don't mind dying repeatedly. But it's a great game, and that was one of those early Hudson Nintendo partnerships. Eventually, in 1987, Hudson had the opportunity to work on a licensed Disney game, and that licensed property ended up being released as Mickey Mouse Adventures in Wonderland to the Japanese Famicom market, and in North America, which is obviously where I was from, Hudson partnered with Capcom to do the publishing, and they published a title called Mickey Mousecapade, which is the North American version of Mickey Mouse Adventures in Wonderland. Now, we've talked about Capcom before, specifically during our episode on Final Fight, so I'm not going to talk about a ton of their history here. To summarize, though, Capcom was a major player in the video game space at the time. They created a number of landmark games and series, both for arcades like Street Fighter, as well as home consoles, with perhaps their biggest home release at the time being the creation of Rockman, as it was known in Japan. It's more commonly known as Mega Man in the United States and other markets. So Capcom was a big deal, and Capcom one of their biggest releases from an from an American home market, at least, was Mega Man. And Mega Man was released in 1987. It was a big deal. So Mega Man, just to talk a little bit about the style of game, what is Mega Man? It is basically a platform adventure action kind of game where you have to navigate a bunch of different levels. Usually there are levels where you actually get to pick which level you go to. So rather than a sequential kind of thing where you start in level one, you move to level two, move to level three, you actually are presented at the beginning of the game with a bunch of bosses that you can select between. And the order of how you tackle those bosses is entirely up to you. You can choose to go to anyone you want. You go into that level, you go through the level, beat it, hopefully, defeat the boss, and then you get a special weapon after you defeat that boss that could ostensibly be used to help you out in other levels and or boss fights. Uh, Now, certain weapons, and the way the game was designed, was that certain weapons were actually designed to counter other bosses, leading to a little bit of strategy as far as the order for tackling every boss. So you could technically go in and tackle the bosses in any order that you wanted to. But there was an actual strategy behind the scenes that you could say, okay, well, I know that boss X has a weapon where if I get that, it will completely destroy boss Y. So I wouldn't want to go to boss Y first. I probably want to go to boss X first so that I can go and defeat boss Y that much easier. Then I would get boss Y's weapon, and that would hopefully enable me to beat boss Z a little bit easier than I otherwise would. 
So this was uh, an early example of what was known as the rock, paper, scissor design strategy, which basically, if anybody's ever played rock, paper, scissors, it's a very simple game where certain things beat other things. So rock beats scissors, scissors beats paper, paper beat rock. I think I said that right, hopefully. But regardless, basically, it's a very simple way of saying these conditions beat another condition and vice versa. That was the design methodology behind Mega Man. Basically, each of those individual bosses, there were certain ones that had weaknesses to others. So there was strategy for how you would tackle that specific sequence of levels. Capcom, right after 1987, was fresh off their success with Mega Man. And by the way, Mega Man spawned numerous sequels and spinoffs over the years. And with that success, some of the core members of the early Mega Man games, primarily character designer Keiji Inafune, director and producer Takuro Fujiwara, and sound programmer Yoshihiro Sakaguchi, would be selected to create a brand new game. That new game would be the first internally developed licensed title for Capcom, and it was going to be based on a popular Disney afternoon cartoon called, you might guess it, DuckTales, which told the story of Scrooge McDuck and his nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, along with a cast of supporting characters. Capcom was tasked with taking that show and creating a brand new adventure for the Nintendo Entertainment System. So I do want to go back to licensing for a second. Like we had talked about, sometimes licenses are pure money grabs, where a company pays some money to use a certain brand or a character, and then they do whatever they want with that property. A lot of times, the licensors, the company that actually owns the intellectual property, doesn't really care as long as they get some form of royalties. Now, Disney was not like that. As DuckTales started to become developed, they brought on two of their internal staff, a man by the name of David Mullich and a woman named Darlene Lacey, to oversee the creation of the game. Mullich was one of a team of individuals who were responsible for working with Disney licensees, and licensees being the people who were licensing the character, movie, television show, whatever, from Disney. And Lacey was responsible for producing both games developed by Disney internally, as well as games developed by Disney licensees. Disney's goal, whenever they licensed one of their characters or properties to another group, was to maintain awareness of what was happening to ensure that there was a certain level of quality that was being maintained. They wanted to make sure that all the games were true to the characters that they were working with. And there was one example early on where they said they were working with one licensee and they had Donald Duck clubbing a bunch of baby seals. And Disney kind of had to put their foot down on that one and say, you know, that's not really characteristic of what Donald Duck would do and nor do do we as Disney want to be affiliated with Donald Duck clubbing a bunch of baby seals so the license or the licensee had to change that game? So Disney was fairly involved insofar as they wanted to make sure that their characters, their world, their overall ethic around their um, intellectual property was being utilized correctly and effectively and was not creating situations that would be detrimental to the Disney brand. But even though they maintained that level of oversight, the task of creating the game was really on the development team. And Mullich and Lacey, being longtime Disney fans, had a vested interest in helping the DuckTales team to create the best possible game using the DuckTales license as would be possible. For his part, Mullich was tasked with working with Walt Disney Television Animation, the division of Disney that was responsible for DuckTales on television, to provide reference materials to Capcom for the show. This included things like music, character sheets, images, and visual references, all that kind of stuff. Basically, all of the reference materials and documents that you would need in order to recreate an experience from a television show and put it into a computer or a video game system. 
Uh, Mullich even had the opportunity to host a Disneyland visit from the Japanese Capcom development team, and that visit was intended to immerse that team in all things Disney and convey a sense of that Disney culture, that Disney mindset prior to the development of the game. They thought that this would make the game that much better if the development team could understand what Disney was all about. So with those reference materials available and the Capcom team formally indoctrinated into the Disney culture, development of the game started in earnest. So the team, the way this worked is the development team would work to mock up levels and artwork for the game. And before they actually implemented anything, they would provide those initial drafts to both Mullich and Lacey for approval. So this was actually a really strong collaborative relationship. It wasn't like Capcom was going off and doing things and then begging for forgiveness afterwards. They would really go through and they would design the elements up front outside of the game, get the approval from both Mullich and Lacey, and then, assuming they got that approval, they would then implement that content into the game. And that relationship would continue for the duration of the game's development. The development team would send over those elements of the game for approval, and Mulch and Lacey would review and provide notes, feedback, all that kind of stuff to help improve the game, and ensure the design was consistent with the overall characters as defined by Disney. It was absolutely a highly collaborative process. And the interesting thing here as well was, and this is one of the stories that I had read about the development process, remember, this is back in the 80s. There was not really email to exchange notes and to exchange builds of the game and things like that. So most of the time when notes were being exchanged, it was either via mail. So as an example, if the Capcom team was sending over a new version of the game to be tested, they had to actually send the EEPROM chip from the cartridge over to Mullich and Lacey to test out, to play. And then they would have to jot down notes and they'd have to send them back either via fax or via actual mail back to Japan. This was a well before the time where you have that kind of instant access communication and messaging between teams. So the fact that this was as collaborative as it was, given the fact that the technology just wasn't there yet to be able to facilitate real-time communication, was very interesting to me. Now, I do want to say that even though this was a very collaborative process, there were definitely some Disney ideals that needed to be worked into the game, and it required a little bit of rework by the development team. There was one overarching rule. Disney characters don't kill. You are never going to go into a game and see a Disney character killing another character. So any enemies in DuckTales that would be defeated by the player could either be knocked out and incapacitated, or they could fall off the screen. You wouldn't have corpses in a Disney game. And that's ultimately what led to the inclusion of Scrooge McDuck's iconic pogo stick move, which would serve as the inspiration, by the way, for countless titles to follow, with the most obvious example of inspiration probably being Shovel Knight, which is an indie platformer that definitely took a lot of inspiration from DuckTales, and specifically the pogo stick move that Scrooge McDuck uses in the games. There were also a couple of other changes requested by the Disney team, such as removing crosses from coffins in one of the game stages and an altered version of the game's ending to better match Scrooge McDuck's character. There were also various grammatical and text changes that needed to be made to best capture the spirit of the Disney characters. So with Disney focusing on making sure its license was used properly, the development team took to creating the structure of the game in a style that they knew very well, and they actually went back to their Mega Man roots, and they utilized a similar framework to Mega Man, in which the player would be allowed to visit any of five stages in the game in any order. There was a little bit of gating in place, not really heavy, and we'll talk a little bit more about that specific gating when we get into the review section of the discussion. But 
basically any of those five levels you could tackle in any order. And rather than gaining new weapons each time a boss was defeated, which was the core concept behind Mega Man, in this game, you would recover one of several lost treasures. So while it used the framework of Mega Man, it wasn't nearly as difficult. This was a game, and the team knew that they were creating a game to appeal to a broad range of players, including children who were enamored with the DuckTales cartoon. So it wouldn't really make sense to create a hardcore gaming experience that kids would never even be able to, to, to beat. So they really kept that in mind as they were working through the overall process, and they took efforts to make sure the game was accessible, but they also made sure it was not completely devoid of challenge. The, if you play the game, it is not an incredibly simplistic experience. It is easy once you kind of get used to the game and the controls, but it's not one that doesn't have any challenge whatsoever. I think they struck a nice balance there. Now, creating what would become the game's iconic soundtrack fell to a man named Hiroshie Tonomura, and I probably mispronounced that, so I apologize uh, up front. Now, he had only worked on four lesser-known games prior to composing the DuckTales soundtrack, and the DuckTales soundtrack has been widely considered one of the better 8-bit soundtracks out there, and one of the, probably the most best well-known 8-bit tune in existence is the moon theme from DuckTales. Now, you know, I do want to talk about soundtrack creation because a lot of times today we take it for granted. That's not to say that we don't appreciate the soundtrack development or composers and musicians that create soundtracks for games, but if we look back at the soundtrack creation of the 80s, specifically around some of these earlier consoles, it was not as simple as going into your musical program of choice and playing a keyboard or putting some notes down on a page, hitting produce, and off you go. You have a song ready to go in a game. Not to say that that's an easy process. Obviously, the creative process is very complex and difficult. But to create the actual mechanics of creating a soundtrack back in the 80s was very different. And I want to talk about Yoshihiro Sakaguchi, who we mentioned a little bit earlier as being one of the Mega Man team members that came over to this team to help create DuckTales. He was responsible for developing a sound driver that Copcom used in a lot of their games. So we should probably talk about what a driver is, just in case anybody isn't aware. A driver is basically the software that talks to the actual hardware in a system, whether that's on a console, on a computer, whatever the case might be. If you're thinking about it from a computer perspective, if you install a sound card into your computer, you need drivers in order for the computer to understand how to interface with that sound card, how to pass it the right kinds of information, and then ultimately how to convey what the sound card needs to do in order to execute various functions and instructions. Consoles were no different. In order to have games actually utilize the sound capabilities of a console like the Nintendo Entertainment System, you needed a sound driver that was used that would basically tell the system what to do, what to play, how to play it. Sakaguchi was the person that developed that sound driver that Capcom used across a ton of their different games. And it was designed using assembly language. Now, assembly language is pretty much one of the lower level types of computer programming languages out there. A lot of times today, you may hear about different programming languages like Unity or C Sharp or Java or, or whatever the Python, whatever the, the modern programming languages are that you want to talk about. Those are all high level programming languages, which means they're written and you can write code in what is effectively English or your language of choice. So it's not like 
you, if you look at a piece of code, you can kind of read it and sort of understand what's going on, even if you may not understand the mechanics or the algorithms behind the scenes. Assembly language doesn't have any of that human readability kind of uh, coding or text built in. It is really designed to have very low-level access to hardware. Rather than typing human-readable code, you're accessing memory addresses and registers, and you're putting specific pieces of data into those registers, and you're telling the hardware what to do with that data. It's a very different kind of process than what modern programming is today. And in order to program a soundtrack using that engine, which was created in assembly language, not only did you have to kind of, in your head, understand what tune you were trying to create, but you had to program in hexadecimal numbers representing the note's pitch, duration, and whatever other effects you might want to apply to the note or to the music, like reverberation or chorus or whatever the case might be. So just think about that for a second. To create these soundtracks back in the NES days, you basically had to represent music as hexadecimal numbers, or at least in this case, hexadecimal numbers. It wasn't like you could just identify notes or play them on a keyboard and have them translated into a game. It is absolutely crazy to me to think that individuals were able to compose such amazing music with such limited tools of the time. And certainly, uh, the individual responsible for the DuckTales soundtrack, Tonomura, was an absolute genius with this thing because as you're probably hearing as we go through the various interludes throughout this episode the music in DuckTales is really good especially for an 8-bit game now with all of those different elements in place eventually DuckTales would be released for the NES in 1989 it would then be ported subsequently to the Game Boy in 1990 and it was an instant success critics and fans alike loved how the game captured the essence of the cartoon Capcom and Disney had a certifiable hit on their hands. They actually sold around one and a half million copies on each platform, which became Capcom's highest selling title on both the NES and the Game Boy. Over the years, it would remain on many gamers' top X list of games for the NES, and sometimes it would even crack into some of the best games of all times list. It would also spawn both the direct sequel in 1993, and that was basically more of the same. So basically, DuckTales 2 is a lot like DuckTales 1. They did add some additional abilities as you traverse each of the game's levels, but for the most part, it was more of the same. But it would also spawn a very loving remaster in 2013, which reintroduced the game to many players who enjoyed the title as children, and it also introduced the title to a whole new generation of players that may not have experienced it back in the uh, late 80s. That remaster would utilize all of the still-living voice cast members of the original show to deliver arguably the best version of the game. And the remaster is one of those rare experiences that stands just as tall as its originator. I highly recommend you check out the remaster if you ever have a chance. It's available relatively inexpensively on various platforms like Steam and probably the consoles as well. But I do highly recommend that one. It is, it is just that darn good and stands shoulder to shoulder with the original at least from my perspective. Countless children of the 80s and 90s grew up watching DuckTales on television and playing DuckTales on their NES and Game Boy, myself included. Disney and Capcom delivered a licensed product that defied the odds and became a well-remembered classic, overcoming the negative perception surrounding many licensed properties of the time, while, at the same time, allowing children and adults alike to have an adventure that would stay with them for the rest of their lives.
We are going to shift and start talking about how it feels to play the game in 2022. So just to recap, DuckTales is a side-scrolling platform game that was released back in 1989 for the Nintendo Entertainment System. And it is a side-scrolling platformer. So what does that mean? Basically, it means that you control a character and you move either left or right across a number of screens and you basically navigate a game world, you attack enemies, you go around, you collect treasure, you collect items, you find secrets, and eventually you find a boss of the level, you beat the boss, you survive, and then you move on to the very next level. And each of the games, or each of the levels within the game, were distinct experiences. So specifically about DuckTales. DuckTales had five different levels that you would traverse, along with kind of an extra level, but pretty much reused one of the existing levels. But you had five different levels that you would go through throughout the game. And like we were talking about, it was designed very similarly to Mega Man in that each of those five levels was available to you right up front. You would basically get into the game, you'd go through a very brief kind of intro, and then you were basically sitting in front of a computer with a map on it, and you could pick which geographic location you wanted to go to first. And depending on which one you went to first, that would then load into that level and you would play through that level and eventually face the boss of that level and then go back and do it all over again, albeit with one less level to select from for the list. As far as movement going through the levels, you pretty much could jump and pogo. Those were the two major ways of moving around. Obviously, you could you could move left, right, and climb things and do the normal types of platforming stuff that you would expect in any of these kind of games, but you also were able to jump. And the biggest add to the game that really hadn't been around previously was the concept of the pogo jump. So Scrooge could basically take his cane and he was able to he was able to jump and press down and B, I believe. And that would effectively make it so that you could pogo stick around and you could pogo all around the level. You could pogo an enemy's heads, which is one of the ways or the primary way you would try to defeat bosses in the game is by pogoing on their heads. And that basically made it so that you were able to defeat enemies around the world. There was one other action you could perform with your cane, and that was basically swinging it. And you could move up the blocks. There were certain areas where there were blocks that you could hit and it would almost be like a golf club swing where you would swing it and it would go up in the air and might hit an enemy that might be flying or hanging off of a ceiling or whatever. There were other areas where you might push a block along by hitting it with the cane and it would slide along the floor and create a platform you'd be able to jump onto and then find a a different area or jump up to higher heights than you would have otherwise been able to reach. So the overall movement was relatively uh, relatively simple overall, but it was effective. And I think they did a good job with kind of setting it up and getting it into the game. One thing I do want to mention is that there were a ton of secrets hidden throughout this game. And I found, I found a good amount. I am sure that there are even more that I have not found at all. And the secrets run the gamut of just kind of going off the side of the screen and and finding new areas to there were some areas where you could actually jump over top of the screen, similar to the getting to the warp pipes in Super Mario Brothers one. You'd basically be able to jump up to the top of the screen, walk across the top level or whatever it was, the top terrain, and then you'd be able to drop off into another screen and find some secrets out there. There were all sorts of different secrets hidden throughout the game. There were also a number of DuckTales side characters throughout the game, like Gizmo Duck, Launchpad, uh, Yui Dewey and Louie, a bunch of characters, and all of the enemies took inspiration from the DuckTales cartoon series. And each of those characters were their own distinct 
character. When you would talk to them, they would have text and uh, uh, discussion-based interactions that made it feel like you were talking to the character. It wasn't like they were just generic text. It was very much focused on trying to deliver that DuckTales experience, albeit in a game form. Now, the one, one of the characters that I didn't really use all that much, Launchpad, who is the, the duck that flies around and, and kind of transports Scrooge everywhere, he is available in every level. And each level, you can go to him and you could actually have him transport you back to your base to store up your money. Now, we'll talk about this in... Uh, actually, let's talk about it now. We might as well talk about it now. There are multiple endings in the game, and the endings in the game are dependent on how much money you finish the game with. So if you finish the game with kind of a normal amount of gold, you get your normal ending. If you finish it with a ridiculous amount of gold, which is, in this case, over $10 million worth, you would get, I guess, what would arguably be the best ending. And if you somehow managed to finish the game with $0, you would get the bad ending. So three different endings that were in the game. I suppose Launchpad would be used to bank some of those dollars so that you can continue to accumulate and hopefully get to that $10 million threshold that would give you the best ending in the game. I didn't do that. I didn't bother with that at all. I wanted to play the game. I didn't really feel the need to to gather all of that gold up and try to beat the game with the absolute best ending. I guess others may, but I did not choose to explore that mechanic all that much. So Launchpad for me just kind of sat there on the screen and every now and then I'd talk to him, but I didn't really interact with him all that much. Regardless, there were other side characters as well. Certain characters you would talk to and they would feed you food, which would recover your uh, hit points and your life. Other characters would give you hints about what to do next. Or if there was somebody that was in trouble or in a cage, they would say, hey, you got to go help person so-and-so. You'd go over there, you save them, and you would get some sort of secret or item for your troubles. So it was just a really well-integrated experience. And the side characters in the game added a lot of interesting flavor to the game and really made it feel like you were playing a DuckTales cartoon. Before we get into more of the specifics around things like graphics, sound, and the narrative, I do want to look at what the box says because a lot of times when you would pick up a game in the store back in this time frame, you wouldn't really know about the game other than what is written on the box. So I always like to take a look at the box and just see how the game company itself markets the game if you were just wandering the store, you picked it up and you thought, hey, this looks like a cool experience. So, for DuckTales, the back of the box says, Bless me bagpipes! When will that thrill-seeker Scrooge McDuck ever quit? Never one to turn away from adventure, Uncle Scrooge has taken on his greatest challenge, to discover the legendary five lost treasures and become the richest duck in the world. Join Scrooge and the DuckTales gang, Gung-Ho Flying Ace Launchpad, the nephews Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and Little Webby on their search. Together, they must trek through the treacherous Amazon jungle, down into the diamond mines of Africa, and even to the moon. Are you duck enough to join them on their adventure? Come along to Duckburg headquarters and see for yourself. And of course, there is the official original Nintendo seal of quality on the game, so you know you're getting a good experience. And I partially kid about that because that seal appealed on or appeared on every single NES game out there, I believe, other than unlicensed ones. So wasn't truly a seal of quality, but I still kind of like the gold badge nonetheless. Anyway, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent. That's what the back of the box said. And if you were a fan of DuckTales, you probably kind of thought, well, I want to play that game. And I do enjoy the fact that they 
made even the back of the box text kind of feel DuckTales-y. I don't know. It was just one of those little things that I felt added to the overall marketing of the title. So now we are going to get into the more specific aspects of the discussion, and we're going to start with graphics. As you guys are aware, this is an 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System title, and DuckTales, from my perspective, is pure 8-bit goodness. The developers took all of those Disney reference materials that we talked about, and they captured the look of the cartoon within the limitations of 8-bit hardware almost perfectly. It felt, now granted, you look at it, and it's not a cartoon. It is not nearly the same quality as a true animated cartoon. But it felt like playing the cartoon. And especially back in the 80s, it felt great to play. Even today, it feels great to play. I'm, I'm not able to convince myself that it looks like the cartoon anymore because, well, my imagination, I guess, isn't quite as good as it was. But it still looked good. And it still looks, um, it actually looks really great, in all honesty. And each of the environments that they have in the game were truly distinct. All of the characters they had were easily recognizable. The colors were bright and vivid. If you wanted to create a modern 8-bit stylized title, you could probably copy the style of DuckTales and you'd be you'd pretty much have the recipe for a hit, at least from a graphical perspective. And for what it's worth, I mean, people have kind of done that. They kind of did that with Shovel Knight. There are other 8-bit styled platform games that have done similar kinds of things. So you can see the style works and DuckTales was was one of the early titles that had that overall stylized view. It felt great. It looked great to play. And I think the developers did a really nice job with the graphical elements of the title. So I do now want to talk about the sound and the music. And I want to relay a story here just to try to illustrate the way I feel about the sound and music of the game. Before I played DuckTales over the last couple weeks. I hadn't played the title for at least 20 years. And even if I had played it within the last 20 years, it was probably just a pop it in real quick and mess around for a little bit and turn it back off. So I haven't played it in earnest probably since like the early 90s, I would say. As soon as I entered each of the level over the past couple weeks, as soon as I entered each level, every note of the songs came back to me, and I was able to remember all of those songs. They were instantly recognizable. And now I can't even get some of them out of my head. They are stuck in my head like a persistent, uh, persistent tune that just kind of plays along. I may need help, but it was just the music was that good in the game that, and that memorable that even though I hadn't played it for years and granted, I hadn't been thinking about DuckTales. As soon as I heard the opening notes of each of the stages, it almost came back to me like a flood immediately. And I was able to remember, oh yeah, that's the way this song goes. That is just a testament to the quality of the music in this game. It is not a lie when people say that this might be one of the finest 8-bit soundtracks ever created. It is absolutely phenomenal. And not only the quality of the melodies, the melodies themselves, yeah, they sound great. The music sounds good. It's appealing to the ear. But the technical aspects of each song are just crazy to think that 8-bit hardware is creating the sounds that you're hearing, especially the moon theme. The moon theme is just, it transcends DuckTales, and it is just that darn good. It is amazing what was able to be accomplished with such limited hardware. Moving on to the narrative and story, 
As we talked about a little bit already, you play as Scrooge McDuck in search of lost treasure in order to become an even richer Scrooge McDuck. And those treasures are scattered across five different lands. You will travel to Africa. You will dive deep into the Amazon jungle. You'll trek across the Himalayas. You will traverse Transylvanian castles. And eventually you will ascend to the moon. And your job in each of those levels is to beat the boss of each level and recover the treasures that they have in their possession. Along the way, you may help your nephews, Yuri, Dewey, and Louie, or any number of other characters from the show, in very simple side quest kinds of scenarios, oftentimes being rewarded with some power-up for your troubles. After finding all of the treasures, you have one final set of encounters to complete against a couple of well-known DuckTales villains, after which you beat the game. The story is pretty typical and consistent with DuckTales' cartoon canon. There's really nothing to complain about here. And, you know, the story in platform games, we've talked about this before, eh, the story doesn't really need to be there all that strongly. It's a platform game. It's all about the gameplay for the most part. I love story in games just in general. That's just kind of the way I like it. I enjoy story in games immensely. But in this game, and in many platformers, the story is just a simple thread that provides the rationale for all of the platforming that you end up doing. It's not absolutely necessary, but I do appreciate its inclusion, and it really does make you feel more like you're playing an episode of the DuckTales cartoon. So from that perspective, I definitely appreciate what the team did here. Moving on to the playability and controls, it feels as good to play today as it did years ago. Though I will say that the controls took a little bit of getting used to. And I do want to talk a little bit about my general process for playing these games. You may have heard me talk about this in other episodes before, but for those who may not have, when I go to play these titles, when I go to play each of the games that we're covering in the various podcast episodes, I play them as they were originally released. What that means is that if I have the hardware and the game itself, I will try to play it on the hardware and the game itself. If I don't, I will use emulation, don't shoot me, but I will not use save states or unlimited continues or anything that makes the game feel differently than what the developers intended or how the developers created the game. My goal here is to recreate the feeling of how it felt to play that game back whenever it was released, albeit looking at it from the perspective of somebody playing it now versus then. The fact is that as a kid, when you were kids or when you were a kid back in this time, your game options were pretty limited. So you had a lot of time to devote to a single game and in the process you'd probably get pretty good at that game. It wasn't like today where you have hundreds of games at your disposal. If you subscribe to Xbox Game Pass today, you have at least a couple hundred games you could play at any given point in time. With emulation available and all the different ways you can potentially get games to play via emulation, you have basically unlimited options to play today. When you're a kid back in the late 80s, early 90s, you didn't have those options. So when you got a game, and even in the gaming market, there weren't tons of games released. It was still a very early part or very early in its overall life cycle from gaming. You had a couple of consoles to choose between, and that was pretty much it. And within those consoles or for those consoles, you didn't have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games you could pick at any one time. So when you got a game, you devoured 
that game. You played that game constantly. You loved that game. Even if it wasn't a good game, you loved that game because that was the game you had and you would make it your own and you would enjoy it. And it was just kind of the environment of the time. Uh, So when you have that much time to dedicate to a game as a kid, or if you have just a lot of time to play something, you will eventually get good. And DuckTales for me was no exception. Regaining that muscle memory as a 41-year-old versus an 8-year-old when I originally played the game, I will admit it took a little bit of trial and error. The gameplay itself and the playability and the controls, they feel great. It feels great to play, but I believe that uh, I may not be quite as dexterous as I once was, so it did take me a little bit of time to get that muscle memory back and to really get into the groove of the game. I did eventually get there and everything clicked again. And once that happened, the game became a very enjoyable experience. But even then, some games that were considered easy, so DuckTales, if you look at the critical reception, a lot of people said back then, oh, you know, it's great that kids finally have a game that they can play because you can't really, they can't always play these these more hardcore kind of titles. And DuckTales is one of those nice, simple, easy games for kids to play. Uh, not really for adults so much, but kids could finally have a game that they can enjoy because the difficulty level is something that they can manage. And I'm going to tell you right now, those easy games from the NES are still harder than the majority of games today. By far, DuckTales was still a difficult experience until things clicked. Once it clicked, I mean, it's a very short game. You probably beat the game in like 30 minutes or less if you get relatively proficient with the controls and you understand the level layouts and where the secrets are and things like that. But it is it is a difficult game to just pick up and play. You do have to get a little bit used to it. And it's tricky because modern gamers may not have the patience to tackle the difficulty in some of these older games. And I don't mean that as a slight against modern gamers because I myself am a modern gamer. I also happen to be a classic gamer. But regardless, this is more of a commentary on how good we have it with today's games and the usability that many of them foster. Back in the 80s and 90s, we didn't really complain about hard games for the most part. There were some exceptions, <coughs> Battletoads, because we just knew we had to get better at the experience in order to in order to eventually beat the game. Uh, nowadays, you pick up a game, and unless you're picking up a game that is intentionally difficult, like something from the Dark Souls series or Elden Ring or things like that, where you know you're going to have some difficulty... Most games are designed to hold your hand a little bit, and they kind of ease you into the experience. There was no easing in the NES era of games. You just had to get good or not play the game, but most of us just played the game repeatedly until we would get good. That all being said, DuckTales is really not all that challenging once you put a couple hours into it and start refining your skills. It is still a blast to play, and like I said, you could probably beat it in less than 30 minutes, probably around the amount of time it would take to watch an episode of the TV series if you get really good and you start to learn the levels. But it does play really well. No complaints for the controls once you kind of get into the swing of things. So overall, how did it feel to play the game I have to say, it is not hard to see why this game continues to be remembered by so many people. It is a quality platform title, and one that inspired many other platform titles over the years. It feels great to play today, though I will admit it is targeted at younger players, which means the experience is a little bit simpler than what many may expect. And certainly if you compare this game to some of the team's prior titles like Mega Man, 
DuckTales is a much more simplistic experience. That said, it doesn't detract from the experience of playing the game, but it does make it so that the game isn't quite as deep as some of the other titles that we've looked at from this classic gaming kind of time frame. Overall, what do we think? Where does DuckTales rank? What is our overall verdict? I will say that, generally speaking, I find little to no fault with the majority of the game, and it holds up as well today as pretty much any title that we've looked at thus far. I do have two minor criticisms. The overall simplicity of the game, it was only five levels, you only had a limited set of skills available, that kind of thing makes it a little bit less deep, though it is still replayable if you're looking for a quick jolt of DuckTales. Just throw it in your console or pop it open in your emulator of choice and have some fun for 20-25 minutes. It's still a replayable game and it still feels good to play, but it's just not that deep of an experience. And the second criticism has to do with the fact that the game's challenge is really one of two extremes. It either feels pretty difficult if you're brand new to the game and you're first starting to navigate the world and work with the controls. It doesn't take long to come up to speed, but initially there is a little bit of difficulty there. But then once you get good, it's a very easy game. It's very simple. You can navigate the world very quickly. It doesn't quite hit that stage of, of just right. Like there is never a period where I looked at it and I thought, oh, this is the, the right level of challenge, difficulty, risk, pick your poison. It just, it never really settles into there. It's either difficult to begin with, or once you get relatively used to the controls, it becomes pretty easy. So you don't really get that sweet spot of difficulty because of that. For me, it just narrowly misses being inducted into the pantheon of classic gaming. It is, though, a highly, very highly recommended golden oldie. I believe you should still play this game today, and I can almost guarantee you're going to have fun doing so. You may even recognize how some of the modern retro-style titles borrowed several elements of DuckTales, which owes once again to the overall legacy of the game. It is that darn good. It just misses by a hair being inducted into the pantheon of classic gaming. But, as I said, this is absolutely a game you should experience, and for that reason, it remains at the top of our golden oldie list. was our episode on DuckTales. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to give me feedback, comments, suggestions, if you'd like to say, hey, why don't you cover this game in a future episode? I would love to hear from you. There are a couple ways you can reach out. You can either reach me on Twitter with the handle at ClassicGamingT, or you can send me an email at ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. I am definitely interested in hearing what you all think, so please feel free and drop me a line. Before we call it for this week, I do want to mention that our next episode is focused on Wolfenstein 3D, which returns us to the id software story that we started back talking on uh, Commander Keen a couple episodes ago, or a few episodes ago at this point. So feel free to write in if you have any particular memories or thoughts about Wolfenstein 3D, maybe even read some on the show. I'd definitely be interested in hearing what you all think. Similarly, 
Uh, depending on where you're listening to this podcast, I would love if you could leave us a review. This is not about trying to bolster star counts. It's not about trying to get all five-star reviews, though obviously I would love it if that happened. But I do want to receive feedback about the podcast. I want to make this the best possible podcast it can be. And the only way to do that is by getting feedback from the community and figuring out what's working, what isn't, and how we can collectively create an experience unlike any other and create the best possible retro classic gaming podcast that could possibly be out there. I'm excited about it. I would love to hear your feedback. And if you would like to leave a review, feel free to do so on your podcast aggregation engine of choice. I am still growing this podcast, still trying to develop the community around it. I, I like what I've seen so far, but there's always room to continue, and I am looking forward to seeing what the future holds. Until next time, we will be back in around a week with Wolfenstein 3D. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>